As I understand it, uh, the departmental seminar gives an incoming lecturer the opportunity to introduce their work to their colleagues. Uh, and I'm not quite as new as I was. Um, and I'm sure you've already heard uh, enough from me, so sorry about that. Um, I do have some um, uh, papers in progress on sort of um, other ideas that I could have presented, but I prefer to give you, uh, as Inga suggested, a more general overview of my central ongoing uh, concerns. Now, that may prove a little ambitious, we'll see, uh, and it also means that some of the material will be familiar to some of you, so apologies uh, for that. But it also gives me an opportunity to try out some of my ideas for the book that I'm currently writing. Uh, so this is work in progress as well as, to some extent, uh, work in print. All of this derives, as Inga says, uh, said, from my fieldwork in Lebanon, mostly in Beirut, uh, starting with my doctoral work in 2003-04 to uh, on uh, Muslim opinions on and practices of assisted reproduction, later published uh, as Islam and New Kinship. But mostly here I'm talking about a subsequent block of fieldwork uh, in 2007-08, with uh, a visit after that as well, uh, as a postdoc which centred on Lebanon's Sharia family law courts. Uh, so in both cases, I was interested in, in what we might call Sharia discourse, uh, albeit in different contexts. So I thought I should start with a few sort of preliminary uh, definitions. What is the Sharia? Now, obviously, that's quite a big question and uh, not necessarily a question that's for me to answer. Uh, but my sort of working definition is that it's God's right path through life uh, legalistically imagined. Uh, we will be as... Uh, uh, we will be judged as humans as to our actions come judgment day, but God hasn't left us without guidance. We have the Quran, uh, we have the traditions of Muhammad's uh, practice, uh, and from these have been extrapolated a huge body of prescriptions, proscriptions, uh, and recommendations uh, through the fallible human science of fiqh, Islamic jurisprudence as it's sometimes uh, glossed. So the Sharia is divine, but fiqh uh, is uh, human. Study of the Sharia was, before the modernization of education, uh, the summit of knowledge, and its expert scholar, the faqih, or alim, uh, was a figure of great prestige, uh, still is in many contexts, and paradigm of a relatively non-institutionalized religious professional class. The Sharia is a total discourse, as Brinkley Messick puts it in his pioneering Sharia ethnography, The Calligraphic State. So it potentially encompasses every area of life. Uh, so to think of Sharia uh, as Islamic law, as it's commonly uh, put, is too limiting, I think, in at least two respects. The first being that it overflows the boundaries of what liberal thought demarcates as law and covers lots of other material that we might rather think of as ethics. And it also covers lots of uh, quote-unquote religious uh, matters, such as right performance of uh, prayer, for example. And the second way in, in which I think Islamic law is a bit limiting uh, as a working uh, definition, uh, is that um, it's a contingent matter whether or not this body of legalistic material is employed as law, backed and enforced by the state uh, or by others, if your definition of law will stretch that far. In Lebanon, only very restricted portions of Sharia discourse uh, are applied as law in the Sharia courts, which are family law courts for Lebanon's Muslim communities. 
So under Lebanon's communitarian legal and political settlement, each of the 18 different officially recognized religious communities enjoys uh, considerable autonomy and prerogatives, Muslim, Christian, and Jewish communities, uh, and these prerogatives include jurisdiction over matters of personal status, family law. And that's the subject of much contestation by secular and nationalist activists uh, who have very different notions of civility. Uh, but even where uh, Sharia discourse is, in, is applied as law, in limited fashion or otherwise, that doesn't give the state or an official <laughs> community uh, a monopoly over the definition of the Sharia because the content of God's law is open to interpretation uh, by any qualified expert. Uh, and there are lots and lots of these guys. Uh, and there are a very many different number of opinions as to what uh, the Sharia is. And that means that the Sharia is often as much, if not more, uh, the language of critique of the legitimacy of the state, uh, civil state, communitarian state, uh, even an Islamic state, as much as it is the means of establishing uh, that uh, legitimacy. Now, I worked on Lebanon's two biggest uh, officially recognized Muslim communities, the Sunnis and the Shia, uh, and to do both is already to take on quite a lot. Um, and these are, again, situated in a still more diverse communitarian plural uh, setting. So I think that makes Lebanon a very interesting place uh, to uh, do research into the ways in which the Sharia is invoked uh, in social life. Uh, but it makes Lebanon a particular place to do so. Uh, but, of course, everywhere is a particular place uh, to investigate these things. But it also means that I should remind you uh, that I am working on committed Islam uh, in the context of Lebanon, uh, and that my work shouldn't be seen as standing for Lebanon as a whole. So don't forget there's lots and lots of other communities uh, uh, beyond the ones that I describe, Christian, but also secular, nationalist, communist, uh, the uncommitted, uh, pop stars, uh, you know, a whole range of other communities beyond these. Now, Given the Sharia's range, I didn't want to restrict myself to the Sharia courts. You know, it doesn't just take place in the Sharia, uh, in the courts, Sharia discourse. And so I ended up trying to map out uh, more of what I think of as the varied ecology uh, of the Sharia in Lebanon. The different sorts of contexts in which the Sharia is invoked in different ways by different actors. Uh, I focused, although not exclusively, on uh, religious uh, professionals, Islamic religious professionals or sheikhs. Uh, in uh, the vernacular, uh, spending as much time uh, with as many different ones in as many different settings as I could. And these are just a few of the ones I worked with. There are you know, lots more. Um, I sat with Sharia court judges as they uh, heard uh, cases, but I also spent time in mosques listening to preachers. I went to Quranic recitation classes. I attended Sufi circles. I was a regular visitor to the offices of Lebanon's resident Ayatollah, uh, Sayyid Mohammed Hussein Fadlallah, who uh, subsequently died uh, in 2010. So I put in the hours uh, and the legwork or the taxi work uh, in Beirut, uh, and as a result, I have got a lot of material, uh, but in some ways quite disparate, and I think the problem then becomes how to connect it. Uh, and so the structure that I'm imagining for the book uh, and that I'm trying out here, so we'll see if it works, uh, is one that tells a story of the Sharia as a vocation uh, and uh, as a career. So I start with uh, a relatively young sheikh, newly graduated from Sharia College, employed as an imam in a mosque. Uh, I then move on to the post which he aspires to reach, that of being a judge, 
uh, in the Sharia courts, uh, and I end with the Ayatollah, an independent uh, activist, thinker, and author. Now, this is an ethnography in some ways of people arguably a bit like me, in as much as they are academic, ambitious, of course, yes, <laughs> seduced uh, by the charisma of the book, uh, and occasionally uh, overwhelmed by bureaucratic demands. Uh, but what is different about them, I think, uh, or was very striking to me, is their commitments, moral, uh, political, uh, and of course theological. And it wouldn't be an exaggeration to say that I had an argument just about every day of my fieldwork, uh, not least, of course, about British foreign policy. I started uh, my doctoral work just after the US-led invasion of Iraq, uh, I missed the assassination of Prime Minister Rafiq al-Hariri, the Cedar Revolution and the Syrian withdrawal from Lebanon in 2005. But I was back in 2006, leaving just before, was it a coincidence, they wondered, uh, before the war with Israel that devastated much of uh, the capital, mostly the parts where I'd been doing uh, most of my fieldwork. I came back in 2007 at a time of intense political tension, repeated car bomb assassinations and the conflagration in the Nahr al-Barid uh, refugee camp. In 2008, the political tensions overflowed into Hezbollah's takeover of West Beirut and other parts of the country. And of course now the situation is terribly fraught because of the disastrous uh, situation in neighbouring Syria. So, you know, this is a particular context in which to try to do this fieldwork politically very intense, but the people I worked with were, uh, you know, remarkably uh, generous uh, despite of that. But this was hard work, I think, on both sides, uh, a sort of long process of mutual wariness, but also to some extent uh, shared interest. I don't think uh, the people I worked with would expect to agree with everything I have to say, uh, but they would at least expect me to give a fair account uh, of what they said and did, and I hope to do that. My theoretical terms are broadly those of uh, the Weberian tradition. I speak the language of vocation, uh, bureaucracy, charisma, disenchantment, rationality. Uh, but I also take up the terms of the new anthropology of ethics, uh, interested in the formation of virtuous selves, influenced by uh, the virtue ethics of Alistair MacIntyre, uh, but also Michel Foucault's his, his later work on the care of the self and the technologies of the self. This work best known in the anthropology of Islam in the Middle East through the work of Talal Assad uh, and Sabah Mahmoud. So this is, this is about thinking about um, projects of turning yourself into a virtuous uh, person. By thinking in terms of vocation and career, what I hope to do is to reconnect these kind of projects of self-fashioning with wider society uh, and historical process. By working in the court as well as the mosque, uh, I try to bring the anthropology of ethics back into conversation with the anthropology of law and rules, uh, inspired by my colleagues uh, in the legalism group here at Oxford. Because in trying to transcend what they would see as a sort of straitjacket of a Kantian rule-focused approach to ethics, trying to see beyond that, I think the new anthropological ethicists have arguably downplayed the use of rules as an everyday technology of the self beyond the law. So certainly in the context of a legalistic tradition like the Sharia, but also uh, in a context like ours, uh, if you think in terms of diets or of setting yourself a limit of only smoking 10 fags a day when you're trying to give up smoking or something like this, the use of rules is a ubiquitous technology uh, of the self uh, here 
as well. Now, uh, as I've started thinking about this, it's become clear to me that anthropologists don't like rules, um, but I think that there is uh, more to say, and I'll, I'll try and say a little bit here. So in sum, I'm asking, what are the implications of a legalistic approach to right living whose transcendent source, God, uh, makes its definition hard to monopolise? What are the consequences of making such a vision the basis of a career? Uh, And to what extent can such paths be incorporated into public life uh, and under what visions of civility? And what might that tell us about some of the larger debates over Sharia and state uh, in the region uh, and elsewhere, but also about ethics, law, and rules more generally? So that's what I'm trying to do. So I'm going to start with a portrait of uh, a young sheikh who I know well. I don't have a photo of uh, Sheikh Mohammed, as I'm calling him, which speaks, I think, to uh, our mutual wariness. I never got a photo of him. I mean, here's, here's a relatively young sheikh, and you can sort of pretend that uh, that's him for the moment. Um, in 2007 to 8, which is the ethnographic present here, uh, he was in his early 30s, uh, and he lived with his parents and two brothers in an apartment in a mixed neighbourhood of Beirut, so Sunni and Shia. And 2007 to 8 was a time of intense uh, communitarian anxiety uh, in the neighbourhood. Uh, the family are middle class, albeit respectable rather than wealthy. Uh, the father owning a mini market, which wasn't doing too well in the depressed economy of the time. Uh, and Sheikh Mohammed himself started out in trade uh, when he was just 11, working in the shop. Uh, and then building up his own independent venture, importing and selling on shampoo and other toiletries. And so when I first met him in 2004, I would accompany him on the back of his moped, uh, chasing up late payments from customers uh, across uh, West Beirut. But as his sheikhly career developed, uh, his available hours diminished, but so did his range of action. So nipping about on a moped uh, isn't really a sheikhly thing to do and he had to borrow his cousin's SUV instead. Uh, And he handed on his business to his brothers in the end. More recently, under the influence of a shakely mentor with an unworldly style, he's tried to unlearn his commercial instincts, uh, to spend and tip without thinking. Of course, he says, I could talk, you know, I could haggle a price, I could could talk for a day about a price, haggle them down. Uh, But now, no, he doesn't think about money trying to sort of unlearn a commercial uh, person and turning himself into this disinterested, shakely person. His religious calling didn't come straight away. He'd first studied mathematics at university for a year, uh, but living by a well-known mosque, he would hear the call to prayer every day and beg them to let him have a go. So he, he literally heard the call. It was then that he decided to make the switch to religious studies, completing two degrees at the Sharia College. Uh, And having won the favour of his teachers, he got work in uh, Dar al-Fatwa, which is the official centre of the uh, Sunni community, and was appointed imam of a well-known mosque responsible for leading the prayers. Don't know how well-known it is, but anyway, there it is. There's his mosque. Um, And there's a whole domain of aesthetics as well that we need to think of beyond uh, the ethics. Uh, Budding sheikhs like him swapping snatches a virtuoso Quranic recitation on their mobile phones, uh, practicing in their bedrooms, uh, as well, of course, as trying to get the right look, the right clothes, uh, but also, very importantly, the right facial hair. Sheikh Mohammed adopting uh, the chin curtain style, as I believe it's called technically, uh, that he deems, uh, and many others deem, sunnah, or the prophet's practice. 
His role as imam brings responsibilities to the community, mediating conflicts, visiting the sick, answering the myriad questions of his congregation in person uh, and on his mobile telephone. A sheikh is, as he puts it, not like a priest who is paid to do community work. His official work is just in the mosque, but this is God's work. Another young sheikh, also very energetic, commented that, sorry to say, most sheikhs view this as just a job, just a way of making a living. So they lead the prayers uh, and then they just go home. But it should be 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Mohammed's cousin, a committed Sufi, scoffed at the efforts of Jobsworth sheikhs. Uh, a leading Sufi, he knows by contrast, hardly sleeps. Sitting with a man who's committed adultery uh, and wants to know how he can escape hellfire for hours, maybe days, now that's real work. Uh, and Sheikh Mohammed's efforts uh, are appreciated, so if you walk down the street with him, you are continuously stopped and hailed. Uh, Salam alaikum. People rushing up to shake his hand, even pulling up their cars or their uh, scooters uh, to do so. Welcome, ahlam wa sahlan, the shopkeepers will say, inviting him in uh, for some of their wares, falafel, uh, pizza and so on. What I say, I love the sheikh and I don't invite him, uh, as one shopkeeper put it to me. Uh, but Sheikh Mohammed is wary of accepting such hospitality. He could eat for free, uh, but no way. That would destroy this uh, disinterested uh, reputation. And having inspired such confidence, he's entrusted uh, with charitable donations, some clearly quite considerable, uh, and he already had at this time a project of his own uh, to help Palestinian street children. His vocation calls, of course, for learning, and he's a voracious reader of the Islamic literature that he collects and displays in bookcases uh, in the family flat. And I haven't got any pictures of them, but uh, this is, I mean, this is the stereotypical portrait of the sheikh before their books, as you'll also find on the ISCA website, Professor David Gellner before his uh, books and others. This is, this, is, you know, this is a culture of the book. Knowledge is to be passed on, and uh, pedagogy is a central part of the sheikhly role. So this is about transforming others into virtuous selves, as well as yourself. Sheikh Mohammed and a chosen few would enjoy together the special atmosphere of dawn prayers, and then sit in the graveyard to feel properly the prospect of death. Uh, and God's coming judgment. But he also gives lessons in the mosque on uh, Saturday evenings, compelling mashups of stories of the prophet uh, and contemporary popular culture, films, video games, and uh, consumer goods. Uh, and I devote quite a lot of space in the book, I hope, to these uh, lessons. Not highly computer literate, he's not a big consumer of the internet uh, or the profusion of searchable CD-ROM-based scriptural materials now available that some scholars would think sort of revolutionise religious authority now. He prefers books uh, and to memorise and embody his learning in the way still expected of someone with pretensions to knowledge. So you have to be ready at any moment uh, for people's questions, he warned me. And certainly in the mosque I would see him bombarded with legalistic queries from the young men who constitute the core of his following. My wife wants to go to the swimming pool. You know, is that allowed in Islam? My sister wears socks like this. You know, is that allowed in Islam? Well, you know, that depends. That depends on you know, the circumstances. Uh, Sheikh Mohammed knows well the need for situated advice, framed in general terms, but with an eye to the particular. Uh, and so it's in this sort of context, although a bit further up the career ladder, that Hussein Agrama has argued that the fatwa, which is a formal opinion as to the Sharia, constitutes an ethical technology, an intervention in people's developing ethical lives, 
uh, as much or if not more than the legal instrument that it's more generally been seen as. When the Shi, Hezbollah and the opposition movement took over the streets of Beirut in May 2008, uh, his community, this Sunni community, came under terrible stress. Uh, and many from the congregation felt humiliated. Where were the real leaders of the community? Where were the real sheikhs, uh, as opposed to these uh, you know, jobsworth sheikhs? In response, Sheikh Mohammed changed the pattern of his lessons, giving briefer talks every night on the early struggles of the Prophet, so clearly framed in the context of the community's struggles. Uh, and his congregation grew in this time of crisis. And so then it really seemed to me that this was somebody that was really going places. Um, but when I visited again briefly in 2009, it was to find that there, he'd had something of a setback, a bit of a fall from grace, because uh, he'd been expelled or dismissed as uh, imam from the mosque by the committee of local grandees that ran it. Uh, and apparently they said he'd been getting above himself, showing off uh, his knowledge too much. He felt that in truth it was because he'd be, been becoming too independent, too strong with his coterie of lads, some of them with you know, big biceps through bodybuilding, uh, but also through his uh, financial backers. As one of his young followers put it, they don't want the real Islam. They don't want real sheikhs. Sheikh Haqiqi, a real sheikh, a true sheikh. Um, so I think there's a sense in which, while of course you want to turn yourself into a real sheikh, to do so um, is also potentially problematic. So through one's concerned commitment, one generates an independent following. One is also no doubt feel impelled uh, to speak truth to power, uh, but that is in a sense uh, inevitably to challenge uh, the establishment. Now, that certainly wasn't Sheikh Mohammed's intention. He's somebody that wants to get on in life. Uh, and, of course, a career outside of uh, the established uh, institutions of the community is a much more fragile undertaking. Uh, and also in a place like Lebanon, you know, potentially dangerous, perhaps. So I think becoming a real Sheikh, this committed, uh, engaged Sheikh, uh, and shaping real Muslims through your commitment has consequences. Uh, and perhaps, I don't know if the anthropology of ethics has really explored this, but there's, there's perhaps a sense in which one has to hold something of oneself back uh, rather than go all the way in this process of virtuous realisation. Okay, so that's, that's biography of a young sheikh. Chapter one. Um, now I move to uh, being a judge. Um, so we've seen some of the sort of tensions bound up with the notion of being a real sheikh. Now we think about the judge uh, or qadi uh, in the Sharia courts, which is a key post, obviously, in the sheikhly uh, career ladder and in the establishment. And in the opinion of Sheikh Mohammed, this is about as good as it gets. You get a much better salary, of course. You get a driver. You get a diplomatic passport. And here, the tensions between being a real sheikh, which we looked at, uh, and a mere employee, a muwazzaf, a functionary, a civil servant, uh, become very apparent. Uh, these judges, I should say, are paid by the state. Uh, and this tension lies at the centre of the book, I think, uh, and I've already published an ex this extended discussion in American Ethnologist, and so apologies to those of you who... Well, no, I mean, thank you for reading it, uh, but apologies <laughs> for repeating some of that material. Now, uh, okay, so we've got this Sharia court system, the Sunni and Shi courts being separate, 
uh, both with a Supreme Appeals Court uh, that looks very like how I imagine a courtroom looks uh, from the TV, you know, yeah, that's, it looks like that. But I mainly worked in uh, initial courts, a sort of primary uh, locus of uh, legal action, um, sitting with eight different judges in all. This is the judge, this is his assistant who takes notes on the cases that are in these uh, envelopes. Uh, so as you can see, it's not an overly determined religious environment. This office had just been redecorated, actually. But uh, usually you wouldn't find much more than a bit of uh, calligraphy on the wall, a pertinent Quranic verse, say. The great exception, of course, being the person of the judge, who is a sheikh uh, and dressed as such. Uh, he's supposed to, anyway. His robe, the jubba uh, and turban here in the Sunni courts, and then the Shi'i courts are pretty much the same, except the sheikh uh, dresses uh, differently. And women uh, entering both court systems are asked to don hijab, uh, the veil, the great contemporary marker of Islamic religiosity. Often just uh, a cloth draped over their hairdos, uh, perhaps the hood of their hoodie. Uh, I've even seen a beanie hat. Um, and uh, more encompassing uh, robes uh, are provided for those who don't come dressed appropriately. If you turn up in a crop top or something like that, which some women do, then you have to wear one of these robes uh, to be modest. Uh, and then you can see them afterwards leaving and, and throwing off this, these robes uh, in uh, infuriation. And people do sometimes become infuriated by what is a forced encounter with the Sharia, because, of course, far from all Lebanese Muslims are very committed uh, or knowledgeable, uh, but under Lebanon's uh, confessionalized personal status regime, broadly speaking, and it's a developing field, you have to go through uh, the religious courts if you want to get married, uh, divorced and the like, unless you got married outside of Lebanon because a civil marriage in another country, neighboring Cyprus most commonly, uh, is, uh, uh, sub, uh, can be judged by the uh, civil law courts, uh, and there are other initiatives afoot. This is a contested field. But generally speaking, you have to go through these courts. So unlike the mosque, uh, for the sheikhs, this is a zone of encounter with the non-religious. Uh, so it's a field of opportunity, uh, obligation for pedagogy, uh, but it's also a, a site of discomfort uh, and difficulty. So in this regard, let me contrast the style of two different judges, uh, both Sunni. Uh, Sheikh A, sorry, not an imaginative uh, denomination, um, but uh, just to sort of spare his blushes, Sheikh A uh, is not only a judge and a prominent member of the Lebanese Sunni community's religious establishment, uh, but is also Sheikh of uh, the local branch of a transnational Sufi order whose sessions I attended. Now, for Sheikh A, judging is about being a Sheikh, about being Sheikhly, about engaging with people and trying to lead them back uh, to the right way. Uh, so if I sketch a vignette, one I've sketched before, uh, one day he was faced with a middle-aged couple who had separated, more or less amicably, uh, but the wife was suing for maintenance of their two daughters. Uh, the husband didn't have any particular objection, but the case still had to be heard. Uh, and our sheikh establishes that one of the daughters, uh, a teenager who's there, is called Nancy. Well, that's not a very Islamic name, uh, he remarks uh, jovially. But mashallah, what God wills, she's wearing the veil, she's muhajjaba. Uh, well, on this occasion she was, of course, as, as is compulsory in the courts. Uh, and it was clear to me, I thought, from the way she was dressed and her family, that this was probably an exceptional rather than a habitual move. But anyway, it was a nice touch uh, on the judge's uh, part. Uh, 
And then he turns to the couple and he says, for the sake of your daughters, you know, you must reconcile. The wife isn't keen, and with a bit of probing, uh, it emerges that the husband is a drinker. Uh, and this then prompts a little sermon uh, on the evils of drink. Uh, but if it's the drinking that's uh, the problem, then that's simple. Why don't you think about your kids? Why don't you think about God? Uh, you could die at any moment. You, know, you get run over by a car and you've been a drinker all your life. That's not going to do well uh, on Judgment Day. Uh, so for Sheikh A, this judge, what's important is, as he puts it, to breathe some humanity in Sarnia into the dry and inhuman bureaucratic frame of the legal system. Now, Sheikh A came to the judiciary relatively late, uh, and like most of the Sheikhly judges without any legal, that's to say civil legal, uh, training. And so the whole realm of procedure and bureaucratic nicety seems to him at best a distraction uh, and at worst an impediment to reconciliation and this sort of right pastoral care. But these courts aren't uh, functioning in a vacuum. Their rulings are only binding because they're sanctioned by the civil state. Uh, and where sanction is required, confiscation of property, arrest, and so on, uh, it will be executed by officers of the civil state. A civil judge uh, thus sits uh, on the appeals court panel uh, to provide advice and scrutiny on these kind of issues, and so the appeals court is very attentive to them. Uh, and it's in this domain that the lawyers who operate in these courts, that, who are the bane of the sheikh's lives, of course, are lawyers, uh, this is where they find their room for manoeuvre. Very few of the lawyers uh, would dare debate the sharia with the sheikhly judge. They much more frequently look at points of procedure. Uh, this document is missing uh, the stamp it requires. Or we weren't given a copy of that document uh, when it was submitted to the judge. So therefore, the ruling is invalid. And however well-intentioned our judge uh, may be, his rulings are frequently overturned on appeal because he doesn't pay attention to these things. So as one lawyer said to me, he might have a good heart, uh, but he doesn't know the rules. He's more of a da'ya, uh, a caller to Islam, a proselytizer, a sermonizer, than he is a judge. Sometimes we say you can't be a judge and a man of religion, rajul a religious professional. So that's Sheikh A's uh, approach. Contrast Sheikh B. Uh, so Sheikh B has a very different style. He comes into the office in the morning. He hangs up his robe. I know he's wearing it here, but it's a portrait. Uh, he hangs up his robe on the coat peg and puts his turban on its hat stand. Uh, this isn't so much a matter of secularising his courtroom because uniquely among the judges I worked with, he plays uh, CDs on his office computer of Quranic recitation uh, and Sufi song, which helps him relax, uh, he says. Um, rather, I feel it's about him rolling up his sleeves and getting down to work. And certainly the judge sitting at his desk in, in a shirt and tie rather than sheikhly garb seems to render his court more explicitly a bureaucratic environment to me. And Sheikh B is indeed a meticulous and efficient administrator. So whereas our other judge is thought of as a bit of a softy, uh, Sheikh B is perceived as arrogant and hard. Where's the stamp? He'll, he'll demand. No stamp, no case. Nasalami. Goodbye. See you. Now, his total rigour in these matters can seem inexplicable to the bewildered petitioners in front of him. Uh, if we take the common enough scenario of a woman who's trying to divorce a husband who's disappeared to Europe or North America to try and find work and has then created a new life for himself there and left her back in Lebanon without income and also unable to remarry... Uh, 
her husband must be notified of the court proceedings uh, for it to be a valid ruling. So you have to send letters abroad and you have to wait the requisite period for a reply, months, uh, and then when the reply doesn't come, as it, as it doesn't, then you have to place advertisements in Lebanese newspapers. There's a whole paraphernalia uh, of procedure that is enormously frustrating and time-consuming uh, for these women. The judge's brusque insistence on all of these arcane uh, details and repeated court sessions at what are necessarily distant intervals, given the volume of the court's business, seems unhelpful uh, at best. His perception, however, is very different. This is exactly how you really help people. He arranges his schedule as efficiently as possible. He gets through more cases a day than any other judge, and he gets the cases done and dusted faster than any other judge. But people have very little appreciation uh, of this uh, efficiency, uh, and they complain, and sometimes even formally, uh, as I've seen. What kind of sheikh is this? You know, always shouting uh, and so harsh, they wonder. A sheikh should, on the contrary, be kind and gentle, <coughs> understanding. So just following the rules, uh, here, those of bureaucratic procedure, however helpful that might actually be, uh, is not in itself enough. Uh, so the sheikhly judge can't act, again, like a mere civil servant, a muazzak, a bureaucrat. Now, for the sheikhs, this tension between being a proper sheikh, committed to helping people with their problems, uh, and being a proper judge, applying rules, is symptomatic of the fact that the Sharia has been usurped uh, by the hubristic uh, secular state and its mundane law. Only 10% of what you see here uh, is Sharia, uh, one judge told me. Only 5%, said another. Uh, the rest is civil law, Qanun. If only they were an Islamic state, Laukanfi Dola Islamia, then they wouldn't have those kind of problems. So if the Sharia was properly installed, then there would be a perfect fit uh, between rule and sheikhly impulse. So, you know, if the Sharia were the rules, then we wouldn't have this kind of problem. As Talal Assad puts it, citing uh, the famous 19th century reformer Muhammad Abdu, the judge cannot be such merely by learning Sharia injunctions, the rules. The injunctions have to become an authoritative part of himself, internalised. The Sharia must become part of the judge's moral and physical formation, this whole idea of the formation of virtuous selves. Ceasing in that context to be mere rules, uh, although rules are, of course, what he deploys in his judgments. So under the Sharia, the ethical and the legal would in some sense collapse uh, into one. Something that the Sharia's legalistic nature, I think, makes eminently uh, imaginable, uh, if not necessarily uh, plausible. Uh, however, subsequent to modernization and secularization, with the educational and moral structures that underpin the classical tradition defunct or transformed, the Sharia can no longer exist in the same way. So in Alistair McIntyre's terms, this is a fragmented tradition. Or as Wa'il Halak, uh, famous uh, scholar of Islamic law, puts it, uh, this tradition is in tatters. Uh, Brinkley Messick's calligraphic state was superseded by rigid print uh, modernity. I don't think I want to follow either the sheikhs or these scholars quite all the way down this line uh, because uh, the nominally authentic pre-modern Sharia court was itself a bureaucratic institution governed by rules and principles of procedure. Uh, and there's a lot of historical work that's shown that um, Sharia-based lit litigation was itself seen as overly procedure-bound. It has very strict criteria for the admission of evidence, for example. So procedure isn't just a function of secular modernity. 
And nor is it just procedure that's at stake. So my judges, they do apply the Sharia in terms of uh, the chunks of Sharia family law that's applied. Uh, now, the issues are pretty straightforward. Does a husband have to pay his wife maintenance? Yes, he does. I mean, there's not much argument about that. Um, and again, uh, so these are generally speaking not interesting cases uh, in legal terms, uh, although they are ethnographically. Uh, so the judges again would say, if you want to know about the Sharia, you're in the wrong place. You, know, you come to the Sharia court. You know, what an idiot. Uh, you, should, you should look in the books instead. That's where you'll really find uh, the Sharia. There are, of course, points of controversy uh, over divorce, uh, of uh, women's right to divorce, uh, custody, and so on. But the courts take a certain line, a certain position within the Sharia, one that is uh, policed by the appeals court uh, that sets the tone. Now, sometimes, of course, a judge will feel that justice lies elsewhere, and some will rule according to their conscience, but then they're going to be overturned uh, by the appeals court. Uh, and most often, in fact, they prefer not to rule at all, uh, but to work towards an agreed settlement, or sulah, uh, which allows much more flexibility. Uh, it can't be overturned, because it's agreed by both parties, and, of course, it sits very well with their sh engaged sheikhly persona. Now, Max Weber uh, fatefully made uh, so-called cardi justice, uh, this image of the cardi dispensing arbitrary uh, rulings from under his palm tree, uh, the master image of substantive irrationality uh, in the law, uh, whereas we now have uh, formal, formally rational uh, law uh, under modernity. Uh, now, that characterization led to a whole post-Orientalist academic industry trying to uh, combat this stereotype of uh, Cardi justice. Uh, but unlike Weber, I think such work rather glosses over the attractiveness of a situation where, to quote Weber, judgments are made on each individual case according to the judge's sense of fairness, as against the bureaucratic state with its rational laws, uh, where the judge is a kind of legal paragraph machine. So you, do, you sort of throw in the uh, particulars of the case out, you get with the uh, ruling. My judges would love to follow uh, their sense of fairness, uh, you know, their, their virtuous sense of fairness, but they can't just rule uh, as they like. Uh, but the constraints upon them, the Islamic legal tradition itself, but also uh, the system of which they're a part are also not uh, just a function of modernity. Uh, scholars like David Powers have shown that uh, you know, these judges were part of a wider system uh, in earlier times too. <clears throat> and of course, these aren't problems uh, sorry, that are unique to the Sharia either. Um, the conflict between the particularities of an individual case uh, and the letter of the law is a general problem, hence the idea of equity in the common law, for example. As legal scholar Frederick Schauer puts it, rules are necessarily suboptimal. Uh, you can never subsume all particular cases under a general rule. So there's always going to be stuff that doesn't fit in a particular case. And I think this just isn't just an issue for the law. I mean, it also has consequences for adopting a legalistic approach to ethics uh, and the good life. I think it certainly complicates this idea of under the Sharia being able to internalise the rules and then there wouldn't be a problem. Uh, but I think it also suggests uh, the figure of the over-literal, over uh, the obsessive compulsive uh, who will follow uh, the rules you know, um, too, uh, you know, too far, or the image of the grimly legalistic Salafi uh, Muslim uh, 
uh, who uh, is you know, overly committed to following these rules uh, and not interested in understanding uh, you know, real life. Um, but whereas in, say, Britain, uh, someone who feels wronged by the letter of the law uh, can then complain that the law is an ass, uh, as we say in England, uh, you can hardly say the same thing of God's law, the Sharia. So it's the judge who ends up being the ass. Uh, no wonder then that opposed to the mufti who can provide generalised and contextualised ethical guidance, the position of judge uh, within the Islamic tradition is a deeply ambivalent one. Of three judges, two are in hell, uh, as uh, the saying goes. One of my judges says nowadays it's all three. Uh, there's a sense perhaps then in which being a judge, being a shakily judge is an impossible uh, vocation. Now on the one hand, that tension makes the position of judge in these courts uh, potentially uncomfortable, although I have to say many of the incumbents seem quite comfortable in their position. Uh, but on the other, it opens up a field of opportunity for people to perform similar roles outside of the state courts. So take this man, for example, Sheikh Mahar Hamoud, uh, who uh, has considerable notoriety uh, in the Sunni community because of, uh, he enjoys the patronage of the Shi Hezbollah. Sheikh Maher uh, long participated in the official court system as a mediator. Uh, such was his success and popularity, here I'm going by his own account, I have to say. Uh, the head of the courts changed the system so that these mediators had to be licensed by the court. They were brought more under the court's authority. He would have become a muwazaf, uh, a civil servant. Outrageous! Uh, so he left... Uh, and has set himself up instead as an independent legal authority, uh, working outside of the courts. He has got his own bureaucratic apparatus. This is one of the sort of uh, legal or pseudo-legal documents that he asks people uh, to sign. Uh, and he serves especially uh, Palestinian refugee communities who, because of their status as non-citizens, find access to the state courts uh, problematic. Uh, he had a reputation as someone you could go to to contract a marriage to a man your parents disapproved of. Uh, that's because the courts apply a vision of the Sharia whereby a bride requires her father's signature, uh, his permission on the marriage contract uh, to get married, even at you know even a mature woman. Um, whereas Sheikh Maher sanctioned uh, a vision of the Sharia that didn't uh, uh, require that. Uh, he's actually now given up doing that because, as he said, it was just too much trouble. Uh, but anyway, he did do that. Uh, the state might refuse to register such a marriage, which, of course, has uh, consequences. But before God, the couple's conscience would be clear. So these guys can set themselves up independent of the state courts. A local critic described this as a Lebanese problem uh, with uh, what is seen as such a weak central state. Then many states do alert, uh, can crop up, quote, like mushrooms. Uh, but for me, I think Sheikh Maha's operation also speaks to the impossibility of imposing a monopoly over Sharia discourse. So as soon as you institutionalize it, then you open up the inevitability of critique and space for the emergence of rival actors. Uh, and that brings me to my third and final, don't worry, case. The Ayatollah. Um, so I'll end, I mean, all too briefly, because he's such a rich and interesting uh, example, I end with somebody who reached the kind of summit of the Sheikhli career, Ayatollah Muhammad Hussein Fadlallah. Um, 
and here he is with my doctoral thesis uh, on reproductive technology, which he, you know, very kindly, you know, I, I'm not sure that he actually read it. Uh, but anyway, uh, here he is with my doctoral thesis. Um, I only met him in person twice, I should say, although that's still pretty uh, good going. He was a very busy man. Uh, although I spent a lot of time with his staff uh, in, the, in his offices, but also in his mosque. Uh, and this gives you a sort of idea, I think, of the scale of um, the operation. Um, and as a major figure of, of historical significance, uh, we know quite a lot about him anyway. Uh, so he comes from a, a known Lebanese Shi scholarly family, although he grew up uh, in poverty uh, in the shrine city of Najaf, Iraq, uh, where his father was a, a teacher in the great religious schools there. Uh, he studied uh, religious studies and was by all accounts a brilliant student, although it's said more interested in poetry uh, than the law. Uh, but one of a, he was also one of a group of young radicals drawn to the emerging Islamism or political Islam of the time. Now, Iraq was, of course, a dangerous place to be a young radical. Uh, and he came to uh, Lebanon uh, in the 1960s at the request of a religious association in Beirut. And he built up a charitable foundation, a religious educational institute, and a following. So I imagine his story as in many ways paralleling young Sheikh Mohammed's, although written on a grander canvas, uh, addressing real people's needs and problems, teaching them how to be committed Muslims, uh, and teaching, uh, speaking truth to power. Uh, Western imperialism, Israel, uh, who occupied the country for nearly 20 years, the south of the country, uh, Lebanon's sectarian politics. As an activist, he became closely associated with Hezbollah, uh, and was dubbed, mistakenly according to him, uh, their spiritual guide. Uh, even though committed to political Islam, he never allowed himself to be explicitly associated with any particular political project, be it Hezbollah, uh, the Iraqi Dawah Party, or Lebanon's official Shi'i community. So, as one of his staff put it to me, he didn't want to become a muwazaf. You know, he didn't want to be working uh, for somebody else. He was a writer uh, of over 100 books, some of which I've read, uh, a flood of learning, in the words of one of his rivals, famously completing his best-known work, Islam and the Logic of Power, uh, by candlelight under heavy shelling during the Lebanese Civil War. But his reputation was really sealed when the CIA, allegedly, uh, tried to assassinate him in a huge car bomb uh, in 1985, uh, and uh, sort of commemoration of this event was one of the major planks of um, his uh, charismatic uh, status. Uh, and this is sort of poster where it's a greeting card you can send your friends. Um, Fadlallah was detained by having uh, to answer an insistent woman's questions uh, and so missed uh, the full force of the bomb which killed uh, more than 80 people. So God's hand spared his life uh, working through, however, his commitment again to uh, engaging with his flock. Uh, and it was after this that his followers started calling him Ayatollah. Uh, so you know it's activist persona but alongside the radical here's another card you can send there's also the softer uh, sympathetic beloved uh, spiritual mentor uh, because rather surprisingly and controversially he emerged in the 90s uh, as one of the limited number of ultimate legal authorities within Shi'i Islam uh, a marja uh, or source of the law a grand ayatollah uh, who could define the sharia could define the law for his followers uh, and did so in the comprehensive three-volume uh, handbook that is the prerequisite of the status. Uh, 
Um, now, that was surprising, not only because of his rather marginal position in scholarly circles, but also because he had long called for an end uh, to the lone scholar model uh, of religious authority, uh, and instead for its institutionalization and concentration under one office, which he likened to the papacy. But tellingly, I think, the momentum of his own career uh, instead led him uh, to go his own way. So he thought it should be institutionalized, but the momentum of career leads you to become a lone scholar. Um, rhetorically, as is conventional, this was uh, in unwilling response uh, to popular demand. Uh, and the demand was certainly there, because most grand ayatollahs, uh, so the rhetoric goes, live sequestered lives in the holy cities of uh, Iran and Iraq. And so they and their visions of the rules don't understand the problems of modern Muslims. But Sayyid Fadlullah, on the other hand, in cosmopolitan Beirut, did. Uh, so being at the margin has advantages. Uh, the Sayyid keeps up with the times, it was said. He is a contemporary uh, marja, he's muasar. He was just about the first Islamic thinker to come out with a verdict on the permissibility of research into human cloning, for example. He knew about women's issues. Uh, can you perform proper ritual ablutions and thus pray uh, if you're wearing nail varnish? Yes, you can. He understood the problems of living in a multi-confessional society. Is contact with non-Muslims ritually polluting, as some of the Ayatollahs would argue? No, it isn't. Uh, and this made his approach especially welcome to uh, Shi Muslim migrants to the West. And he built up a global audience mediated through his website, uh, in the use of which he was an early pioneer. Um, this may or may not work, but... Here's his website. Um, okay. Fadlallah was, he said, uh, both teacher and pupil. Uh, so he was open uh, to people's issues. Uh, he listened and then he uh, changed the law. Um, so the ethical pedagogical relationship between mufti and petitioner should cut both ways. Uh, you know, you should learn as teacher as well. The Sharia should be flexible. Uh, the Sayyid was open-minded, Munfateh. Now, of course, as one becomes more popular and one's following grows uh, into the thousands, in some cases even the millions, uh, this sort of direct engagement <coughs> with your uh, flock uh, becomes problematic. Uh, but communications technologies, and in particular the internet, uh, help uh, bridge the gap. Fadlallah was a frequent interviewee on satellite television, uh, but also you could send him questions uh, by email. Um, and I shall very... So this is the English website, Hijab Between Religion and Fashion. So you can see frequently asked questions. People will send in questions uh, and give an answer <laughs> on uh, the internet. So these are answered by a staff uh, following his uh, opinion, which they know, but were checked by him before being sent off. Some are posted on the website, as you can see, but there's also an archive of correspondence to which I had limited access. Uh, so you need a bureaucracy to sustain this kind of project. And of course, this is then a double-edged sword. Uh, once he became a source of the law, the very visible public engagement and activism that was his strength also became a source of tension. Uh, so his every word, and he said so much uh, on TV uh, and elsewhere, his every word could be taken as a fatwa. Uh, or as an opinion as to the Sharia. 
situated interventions in people's unfolding ethical lives could be and were cited out of context. Uh, and he was a very controversial figure. And so it's no wonder, I think, that many such figures uh, withdraw from public life to be sparing with their words and their presence. So, you know, these forces can push you back out of uh, the public too. Uh, what about the Islamic State that he might have been expected to hope to install? He was initially uh, enthusiastic for Khomeini's vision of uh, the uh, role of the jurist in, in um, overlooking affairs of the state, um, but faced with the reality of Iran's uh, extended power and also uh, the decreasing legitimacy of that state, he became less and less enthusiastic. Um, he ended his life, indeed, expressing some sympathy for a very different notion of civility, uh, liberal democracy, uh, although that's pretty debatable. I wouldn't put too much weight on that point. But I think he was led away from uh, the explicit quest for an Islamic state and instead towards a focus on the work, on working on the virtuous selves uh, that might populate it. So you start bottom up. Form virtuous Muslims instead of... Uh, Islamic State institutions. And after his death, uh, the problem becomes one of securing the legacy of the lone scholar, uh, the personalised legal authority. And for all his contemporaneity, uh, I think in some sense that's a resolutely anti-modern uh, model of authority, this lone scholar. But how do you entrench and institutionalise that after his death? Won't this flood of learning uh, simply drain away? Uh, and that's uh, something I'm working on now. Okay, um, that is to sketch uh, a series of uh, vignettes, portraits, insights into some of the contexts I work on, uh, through which I hope you get an idea of, of what I do, but also um, some of the issues that my subjects are wrestling with, some of the tensions and contradictions. So I think that adopting a legalistic <laughs> ethic of right living with a transcendent source has consequences. So it offers opportunities, of course, but also contradictions. Um, so I noted this important strand of academic writing on the Sharia that sees its contemporary situation as fragmented and is in some sense inauthentic, and so these contradictions would be a symptom of modernity. Um, I'm reluctant to see my uh, sheikhs as you know, inauthentic, um, but also I saw other reasons to disagree. Uh, as I told you, some bound up with the ruliness uh, of the uh, Sharia, and in any case, like Anand Pandian, I think we can and should take fragmented traditions uh, seriously. But in describing the uh, varied ecology of the Sharia in contemporary Lebanon, I think that rather than fragmentation or indeed the flexibility uh, that um, you know, Muslims but also academic scholars of the Sharia valorize, perhaps we can think in terms instead of plasticity uh, to continue the sort of biological uh, metaphor. The Sharia can certainly look flexible and open uh, in some contexts, but in others, it necessarily must become less so. Uh, it hardens uh, in the court and so on. And this is a function of its legalistic or ruling quality. Now, these tensions, it seems to me from my ethnography, drive action and biography in certain directions. Uh, to take the ideal vision seriously is to try to realise it uh, as embodied virtue or even as uh, legal order. <laughs> But to try to implement an ideal is in some sense inevitably to fail and then create the impetus uh, for further action. Now that's of course not to say that the Sharia itself is a failure. Uh, I agree with James Laidlaw that contradictions, uh, contradiction is more often a normal 
than pathological state uh, for ideal ethics. Rather, these contradictions create movement, dialectical movement back and forth between attempt, uh, critique, uh, another attempt, into and out of institutions, establishment in the state. So they create uh, biography and history. And in this, I do see resonances with the wider ebb and flow of calls uh, to install the Sharia uh, in the Middle East or elsewhere. So I do hope that my ethnography of these religious uh, professionals, the obscure ones, uh, as well as the famous ones, uh, has something to say about those larger historical processes. Thank you.